It's 12.08. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eric, I did not hear this on your newscast. It is, I think, the most stunning story of the day. I mean, who would have guessed that this could have happened? Husband of adult film performer Stormy Daniels seeks divorce. <laughs> who, who could have? I mean, I, I mean, Stormy Daniels apparently getting divorced. I, I could, could you believe? I am just absolutely stunned. I thought that marriage was going to last forever. <laughs> I, I just, I, I just did. Oh, it, it, it gets better. Okay, so Stormy Daniels, her real name is Stephanie Clifford. She's married to a guy named Glendon Crane. You should see the picture of this guy. He's also a pornographic film actor. So they, they met in the business. This oh, was apparently okay. like an office romance. He files a divorce petition last week in uh, Texas seeking child support and custody of their their daughter. The grounds he is alleging for divorce? Adultery. <laughs> Adultery. Now, I, I just I raise this question. If you make your living having sex on camera, I mean, isn't it a perpetual state of adultery? I mean, it's, I mean, I mean really, it's kind of, I mean, if that's what you do for a living, you know, how was your day, honey? Well, I had sex with seven guys on camera. I mean, it, it, can you be sued for adultery? I mean, I, I just raise, I raise these questions. Who would have thought that this marriage would have, would have broken up? It gets better. It gets, <laughs> there's more. There's wow. more. It gets better. Okay. Now I have described Stephanie Clifford, Stormy Daniels, and her and her attorney as being the two greatest self-promoters since Barnum and Bailey, right? So as soon as the, the husband files the petition for divorce alleging adultery, and that's kind of again, I, 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 I how how can you do that? But all right, regardless, the the lawyer decides to you know weigh in this this Avenetti character, this Michael Avenetti, who um, the the two most dangerous places in the United States to be right now. It was between Stormy Daniels or Michael Avenetti in a TV camera. I mean, just look out. You're going to get run over and get injured. So as soon as they file this, Avenetti takes to Twitter and says that uh, Ms. Clifford kindly asks for privacy for the sake of her family. Okay, now, all right. Irony, the word ironic does not even begin to describe this. This is Stormy Daniels. The concept of Stormy Daniels and privacy is completely and totally alien. This is a woman who, if there is an opportunity to get her face on a TV camera, she will be flying halfway around the country to do it. But now she wants, she wants privacy. That's according to the attorney. It gets even better. Two hours after he comes out and says on Twitter, she wants privacy. She comes out on Twitter and says, I don't want privacy. <laughs> She's like, I don't want or need privacy. Um, I want truth. It will all come out. I'm not afraid. So it's kind of like, hey, hey, lawyer, Avenetti, what do you mean? Don't you understand my whole gig is based on getting my name in the news, and this is just the latest way to do it. I don't want privacy. Who cares about this? <sighs> Who would have figured that? You know, I'm just Stormy Daniels, the the love affair, <sighs> two pornographic film actor and actresses. They get married and then it it kind of ends, huh? Well, well, who who you know? You just, you just never know the the lovebirds. I mean, it's yeah. Next thing you know, you're going to be finding that like the the prince and the princess got divorced. Well, maybe not quite. All right, we start the show like we start every show with three big things. Let's start with what is going on in Seattle. Now, the the left coast 
is sort of the hotbed in many respects for the, the anti-gun movement. You know, people who do not believe that law-abiding citizens can responsibly own and handle firearms. So there is a constant push, particularly in some of these very, very liberal cities, to see how far they can go to rein in people's rights to own firearms. So here is what Seattle has just done. They have passed uh, an ordinance. This would be a local city ordinance that it's called the the so-called safe handling ordinance. Here's what the ordinance says. If you live in Seattle and you own a firearm, you you can own the firearm, but if you keep it in your house, you must keep it in a safe when it is not on your person. So if you're sitting at your kitchen table and you are cleaning your, your firearm, that's okay. But if you are not carrying your firearm, it has to be in a locked safe. All right, so what does this mean? It would mean effectively, let, let's say, let's say for whatever reason, you choose to, I don't know, in your bedroom, you choose to have a firearm, say in the nightstand or the dresser drawer or whatever. It is against the law for you to do that moving forward. The gun must be kept in a locked safe. And, you know, you, you are entitled to have the combination. So if somebody breaks into your house, 2.30 in the morning, you hear rustling. You know, let's say you live in a ranch house in Seattle, and you hear crash, that somebody has kicked in the door. It is a home invasion situation. Well, okay, you know, you, you are prepared. You've seen these stories. You've got the firearm. But unfortunately, you can't just open up the nightstand and take out the firearm. What you have to do is you have to go to your gun safe, Wherever you have that gun safe, maybe it's in the bedroom, maybe it's in a closet, you know, maybe it's in another room, and then you have to dial in the combination, and then and only then can you take out your firearm. Meanwhile, of course, the person who has broken into your home is going to be unfettered by gun safes or things like that. If you fail to keep your gun in a safe, it you are liable then for a fine. If Somebody gets access to the gun that's not kept in a safe. You are access, you are eligible for a larger fine. If somebody takes the gun and the gun disappears, you have an obligation to immediately notify the police that the gun is missing. If you don't do that in a prompt fashion, you are responsible for a fine. And if somebody uses that gun and you have not reported it and they use it in a crime, you are responsible for a larger fine. Now, a number of people have taken this ordinance. They're suing, saying that this is an unreasonable restriction on my rights. And, of course, those people are being labeled as just Second Amendment reactionaries. Let's tee this up. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I think a responsible firearm owner, you have an obligation to keep that firearm in a position where Children can't get it. Um, and I think, you know, responsible firearms owners do. At the same time, if a person, let's say you live in a home where there's no kids, 
um, and you, for whatever reason, want to sleep with a firearm in your nightstand or your firearm under your pillow or your firearm in a dresser drawer so you can retrieve it in a matter of seconds if you need it, I think you should have an absolute right to do that. And who is the city of Seattle to tell you otherwise? Now, I think it is fair to say, all right, if you are irresponsible with the gun, you leave it lying around and someone gets access to it, I think it's, I don't necessarily have a problem with saying that you have to report it. If the gun is stolen, you should have to report it as soon as possible. I don't have a problem with that. I also don't have a problem with holding someone accountable if they don't have the gun properly stored and somebody gets access to it, a kid or whatever. In that particular case, yes, I think there should be some responsibility. But does the government have the right to tell you in your own home, in your own home, that you have to keep your firearm under lock and key regardless of in a safe, regardless of the circumstances? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer is absolutely not. Again, I think it's going to depend on circumstances. Clearly, if you've got kids around, you probably want the firearms out of their reach, not accessible to them, maybe in locked cabinets. But this idea that everybody has to keep their guns in a gun safe, I think is ridiculous. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Sarah in Burlington, Texas. Any responsible gun owner teaches his children proper gun safety. Every right comes with responsibility. The government needs to stay out of our homes. Seattle has just passed an ordinance which would fine people for keeping firearms in their houses unless the firearms are contained in some sort of locked safe. If you want to put your gun in a locked safe, I have no trouble with this. I don't think, though, it is government's business to tell you that you have to keep your gun under lock and key in a safe or whatever. If you want to, and again, it's going to vary by person to person, but let's face this. Let's say you have somebody, retired police officer, single, all right? who for whatever reason sleeps with the firearm in the nightstand next to them. All right, there's no children that come into the house. You don't have to worry about that. Why should the government be telling that person that they have to lock up their gun? And I know a lot of people do that, and and that's fine. If you choose to do it, I don't have an issue. But to mandate it in all cases, I think, is gross overreach. Jay and Racine. Jay, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. I agree that... I do not have kids. I have multiple guns. I own a gun safe. I think any responsible gun owner takes it in their responsibility when they purchase a firearm to purchase a safe, to lock it up, to prevent it from getting in the wrong hands, whether your house gets broke into, your kids take it, somebody that is not supposed to have it in their hands obviously gets it in their hands and the way guns are running around the streets nowadays, it is. It's completely out of control with the way guns are. It isn't a matter of that we're worried about the government telling us, yes, you have to have a, a, a safe in your house for a gun. I mean, anybody with common sense, responsibility of owning a firearm, own a safe. Just prevent it from getting in the wrong hands. You have a toolbox. You put your tools in a toolbox. You lock that up. 
for what reason so your tools don't get into the wrong hands. Well, but what about but, but what about what about someone who for whatever reason wants to have immediate access to the firearm? Doesn't want to have to worry about going down to the living room or going down to the basement where the the gun safe is. I mean, why should they not have a right to keep a gun by in their nightstand? The way I'm reading this is if you're gun gets out on the streets yeah. and is used in a crime, you're fined for that. Yeah, well, right, there's different... But no, here's the way it works. There, There's different penalties. The first requirement is you have to have a gun safe. The gun has to be locked up. That's number one. If the gun then... Dis- and you can be fined if it's not. If somebody gets it in... in if somebody comes across it um, and then takes it, then you can be fined a bigger fine. If then um, somebody uses that for a crime, it can be a bigger fine. But it starts with the whole idea of having to have your gun locked up in the first place. And that's what I have an issue with. If you have, uh, again, the single woman, for whatever reason, husband's out of town or whatever, there's not kids around, there's not a concern that people are going to access that firearm, I, why shouldn't they be able to have a gun in the nightstand that has you know immediate access that so they can get immediate access to it now obviously if you've got small children in the house it's going to vary and i'm not arguing against putting guns in gun safes i know a lot of people do it and it's the choice that they end up making but i don't think it is the government's responsibility to tell a law-abiding firearm owner that you have to do this in your own home that you can't have that gun in the nightstand for easy access if you want to protect yourself. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Tom in West Dallas. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon. How are you Hi, doing Tom. today? Good. What do you think? Hey, uh, well, see, I don't I, I don't think the government should be getting involved in saying, hey, you need to have, you need to, it's mandatory, you have to lock up your guns. You know, but it's kind of like, you know, we got to tell people to put on seatbelts. We got to tell people to wear helmets on a motorcycle. I, I own several. There's actually, there's actually quite a few guns in my house. I own four myself. Uh, my uh, wife has three herself, and one of our kids, he has. Uh, oh my God! You think we're crazy? He has no. three himself. No, no you just you're, you're collectors or you're enthusiasts or whatever. I don't think you're crazy. Yeah. No. And and the only the only firearms that are not secured are the ones that we have on our person. Other than that, there we see that we don't see that there's any reason that, that guns should be in some way either not have a trigger lock or be in a gun safe. If you want to carry at home, then you have one on you. But no, a gun should not be laying around locked, loaded, and ready to go. Well, what about know? in the nightstand? But let's say that you lived in a high-crime area. Um, do you think that you should have the right? Now, may, a lot of people will choose not to do this. I get that. But do you think, let's say you live in a high crime area and you think that there might be a necessity to defend yourself or your home, do you think that the government should be telling you that if you wanted to have a handgun in the nightstand next to your bed that you couldn't do that? No, no. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest, I have a magnet mount right next to me. So at night, I take the firearm that I wear during the day, and I yeah. put it on the magnet mount, and it's there for quick right. access at night. Well, and you that's, know, yeah. Okay, and see, that's my, thanks, see, that's my, see, that's my only point, that, it, that 
that you should have the right to do it. I'm not arguing against, you know, gun safes or locking up firearms or trigger locks or anything. I, I think in, for most case, in most cases, that's the way people tend to store their guns. And, and that's fine with me. But I am saying that I think at the same time, if you, there, there are certain cases where maybe people are going to need access to the firearm right away. And I don't think government should be saying you can't do it. Now, obviously, if, there has to be accountability. If you don't have your gun locked up and some, I don't know, your your teenage son gets it and takes the gun and goes out and uses it to shoot someone, that th- should there be some degree of accountability for you? Yes, and, and and there will be. I don't have any problem with that. That skull comes with responsible gun ownership. But I guess I, I'm trying to picture the, uh, again, the, the 65-year-old lady who is living by herself. She's at home. She's afraid that she might be a target. It just gives her security. So she has a firearm in the dresser drawer next to her. It's not under lock and key, but it's eased of, ease of access. Do we really want to say that she can't have it? And my answer would be no. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, former Milwaukee County Supervisor, current Milwaukee Alderman, Khalif Rainey. Uh, this is a guy who subtlety is not necessarily his strong point. You might remember after, a couple years ago when you had the, the shooting of a guy in Sherman Park by, as it turns out, an African-American police officer that was used as this excuse to go on a a looting and rioting binge in in Sherman Park. Uh, This was one of the guys, Milwaukee Alderman Khalif Rainey. Here's what he comes out, and after this lawlessness and the rioting, he says, the entire community has sat back and witnessed how Milwaukee, Wisconsin, has become the worst place to live for African-Americans in the entire country. The worst place in the entire country. Now, this is a warning cry. Where do we go from here? Where do we go as a community from here? And, and then he goes on. Well, all right. He, he's no stranger to hyper, hyperbole. The, the worst place in the country. Well, he's now decided to wade in on the Josh Hader instance, incident. Everybody knows this story by now. Josh Hader is the... Young man, he's in his second year, first full year as a pitcher for the Brewers. Young guy, he's from Southern Maryland. Kind of a, a good old boy, quote unquote. Right Back when he was 17, he took to Twitter and sent out tweets that were homophobic, racist, and misogynistic. No question about it. Did it a number of years ago. This goes back to before he was drafted by Major League Baseball. He was a high school kid. When he did this, it's not excusing anything that he said, but it's a number of years ago. None of his teammates, and this includes people who are Latino, people who are African-American and people who are white. Everybody says, you know, that this is just whatever this kid said back when he was, you know, 24 years old. This when, when he was 17. This is not the kid. This is not the guy that we know in the clubhouse. His teammates rallied to him. Hater came out with a tearful apology, unlike some media personalities that have denied they sent tweets. Oh, no, I, I didn't do this. My account must have been hacked. No, he, he said, yeah, I just, I just, this this is not who I am now. I was young. I was stupid. I renounced these things. I'm really sorry. He wasn't a professional baseball player at the time, 
Major League Baseball came in. This was not like a John Rocker case. We talked about you know John Rocker last week when this story first broke. He was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves who went off on these different tirades when he was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Major League Baseball came out. They said they denounced these things. And um, they, they said, all right, you, you need to go to like sensitivity training, but we're not going to suspend you. This is, you weren't even a player at the time. We don't condone this. But we recognize you're a different person now. Nevertheless, go to sensitivity training. And that's pretty much the position that the Brewers have taken. So anyhow, over the weekend, they bring him into a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I was not at that game, uh, but I was watching it. He gets a standing ovation from the Brewers crowd. This has incensed some of the national commentators who are obsessed with race. And it's obsessed some in Milwaukee. For example, Khalif Rainey, he's the guy who, in the wake of the Sermon Park riots, declared that this was the worst place in the country for African Americans to live. He says that the reaction of the fans to Josh Hader was an embarrassment to the world. The boisterous manner of standing to show support for Hader is nothing less than a dismissive stance against the problems of race affecting an entire community, a community dealing with the effects of hypersegregation, economic disparity, and police harassment. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The fact that the fans collectively stood up and gave Josh Hader a standing ovation, welcoming him back after the events of the last few days, is that and should that be treated as an embarrassment to the world? 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss next, and I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. It's 1241. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Milwaukee Alderman, Khalif Rainey, plays the race card. It says it was an embarrassment to the world, and he is talking about you Milwaukee Brewers fans, when Josh Hader came into the game on Saturday night, he received a standing ovation. In the words and the belief of Khalif Rainey, that is an embarrassment to the world. He, by the way, is not alone. There's a lot of number of national commentators who are saying the same thing. I think this is just incredibly unfair, and it misses the point of what that standing ovation was all about. Joan in West Dallas. Joan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good. I love listening to your show. Thank you. And I just wanted to tell you that I was at the game Saturday night, and with a group that we always go with, we all stood up. We all applauded him. I'm a Christian, and I feel that the ear is human to forgive is divine, and the man is wonderful. Ironically, the next day, my son saw him at a restaurant, and he got a picture with him mm-hmm. and said, because of him, his son loves baseball. So, mm-hmm. so you, when, so you weren't when you were standing to to applaud him. You weren't yeah. in any way, shape, or form endorsing what he had done seven years ago. You were just saying, "Hey, look, you've accepted responsibility for this. I'm willing to let you move on." Absolutely, because I think of everything we did when we were seventeen. Of course, we didn't have the social media, then, right. But I just believe I am. We need to become a world where we need to move on. And he is very sincere. I feel he was very sincere when he was sharing it with the media of what he did. And I just feel bad that somebody even had to dig the past up 
to do this for him. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much for listening. 414-799-1620. Um, let's see, one of our Chris texts, people do change and give Hader his due for owning up to his actions. Yeah, that's, you know, isn't that refreshing when you compare it to, well, here's a text that makes his point. Jeff, Lena Taylor, a state senator, didn't even get this kind of press for her recent outburst at a bank, and she has not yet apologized for her comments. What a double standard. For goodness sake, he was a 17-year-old kid. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. Okay, w- was this was this an embarrassment that Brewers fans support Josh Hader? No, actually, I think it's, it was actually kind of refreshing because, it was, first of all, A, they handled it really well. B, he was out there up front, sincere, he apologized, didn't play any kind of games, didn't whatever. He's like, hey, I was stupid, you know, whatever. And then besides that, what's the, what's the expiration date of being stupid? Well, right. I guess it depends on who you are and what yeah, exactly, exactly you've done. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, Is there a statute of limitations on on bad behavior? And for some people, I I guess the answer is is no. There there's not. For others, like again, State Senator Delina Taylor. Well, may, maybe well, that just yeah. goes. The, the shelf life is two weeks, and then you move on. But the thing is, is you know what? I've never heard an apology for anybody from the NFL who personally I think mishandled the whole anthem thing. Nobody ever apologized for, right. you know, for for not standing, for not, you know, whatever. Right. They didn't make up an excuse. They didn't, they didn't do anything. I mean, right. it's, just, well, it's, it's for the cause. It's for the cause. You know. So I mean, you know what? I I I, I applaud the fans, and I think for all the commentators and everything else, looking at it from the outside in, I think they're misreading it, and I don't think they understand the values that we have here. I right. I I think they're. Thanks for call. I think they're they're misreading it as well. I, I think if especially if if you want to obsess on race, you you will see this. Oh, they applauded him. That is an endorsement of what he said seven years ago. No, I, I that that's that's reading. I think what happened completely wrong and trying to you know advance you know your your own particular agenda. What I think that applause was for was here's a young man. Who's been, you know, through the, the, the ringer. I mean, obviously there was somebody looking to get him. They, they find these tweets. You release him right as he's going into pitch at the all-star game. You're trying to cause him as much harm and embarrassment as possible. And immediately he owns up to it. I mean, he didn't shirk. He didn't, you know, hide. It's just, yes, I did this. I'm sorry. I apologize. That's not who I am. I was a stupid kid. And this is the wreck. I think this is the fans acknowledging that, all right, we support you. We have accepted that. Now, if people don't want to, quote, unquote, forgive him, well, okay, then don't forgive him. But this idea that that reaction is an embarrassment to the world, well, um, only if you have a particular agenda, I think, that you want to advance. 414-799-1620. Jason in Mequon. Hi, Jason. You're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. What I do you think, think this is uh, much to do about nothing. The guy just got back from the All-Star game, for Christ's sake, where he pitched in the game. So they were standing up and applauding that. And if, you know, Khalif Franny wants to pipe off about this, I don't remember him piping off about, you know, screaming Lena when she was, you know. Using the terms, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Racial they- epithets. And I have more respect for Josh now because he manned up to it right away. Yeah, he he did. I mean, thanks to God, he accepted his punishment. Look, if you want to talk about Brewers, 
I understand Ryan Braun, for example, is always going to be haunted, not just by the, the PED scandal, but by the way he reacted to it. This press conference where he denied doing it, you know, blamed the, the guy who was the specimen collector. That's that's going to be something that, you know, he still he doesn't get forgiven for. And I I understand that. And that's something that Braun has to live with. It's something that happened while he was a player. This, to me, is something completely different. The kid's a stupid 17-year-old from rural Maryland. And, all right, I'm not justifying what he did. It was dumb sort of stuff. It was bad sort of stuff. But it was a number of years ago. It was when he was a kid. And he, like you say, he owned up to it. He manned up on it. He accepted responsibility. And that's what I think the key is. And to suggest that all the fans that stood up and applauded for him are applauding his racist tweets, well, you're just trying to advance your own agenda. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1250. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you have been following some of the national sports commentary, Milwaukee is getting a lot of heat because Saturday night, Josh Hader, everybody knows the Josh Hader story. He comes back, he comes into pitch, he gets a standing ovation. Um, starting with a Milwaukee alderman who said this reaction is an embarrassment to the world. ESPN commentator saying this is an endorsement of racism. How dare people, you know, stand up and applaud for this guy? Um, that, that's, I think, the, the sort of prevalent take. I think that misses completely what happened the other night. 414-799-1620, Taylor in River Hills. Hi, Taylor. Good afternoon. afternoon. How are you today? I am well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Um, I, I have a couple of different ways to look at this. And first of all, I think it, the standing ovation was uh, eyebrow-raising, not necessarily an embarrassment to Milwaukee. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, no one, I, not too many 17-year-olds have been lambasted for putting out rap lyrics. Mm-hmm. And that's, first of all, where those, his racist tweets, whatever you want to call it. Some of them, rap yeah. Lyrics. Yeah, some of so them. So I gave that yeah. most of them, I gave that pretty much a kind of a pass. It was the I hate gays. Yep. That part. And some of the, the way, you know, people are looking at this is kind of questionable. One, they're saying that he got out in front of this and handled it like a man. Getting out in front of something is talking about these tweets before someone else makes them public. That's getting out in front of them. Second of all, he owned it. Now, you as a lawyer have been in court and seen criminals apologize to victims, and I guarantee you the gallery in the courtroom did not stand up and give him that criminal a standing ovation okay would you liken him to a bank robber or would you would you liken a 17 year old who puts these to a bank robber or a drug dealer or a rapist year old who goes joyriding and crashes into a sign you're you're equate you're equating hateful tweets with somebody who like steals a car and crashes crashes that car i guess i don't i don't see the comparison i'm I'm equating the excuse that Mm -hmm. he was only 17 years old and making these decisions and doing this as the same thing as someone who's 17 years old yeah. and goes joyriding in a car. Sorry, I'm, I'm not going down that, that route. I mean, a 17-year-old that says something stupid. 
as a 17-year-old that says something stupid on Twitter, to me, is not the same as a 17-year-old who uh, steals a car and leads the cops on a high-speed I, chase. I completely, I, I didn't say anything about leads the cops. Well, okay, steals a car and drives the I car into a tree. The excuse that people say he's 17 years old and his mind was developing and he hmm. didn't know what he was doing. I no, I just think he was a stupid kid. I don't, I don't, I don't buy the mind developing. I just think he was a stupid, immature kid. Exactly. Yeah. And and next, just briefly talk about Khalif Rainey's statements. It's very, very documented by many sources that Milwaukee is the worst place for black people to live. Well, I, I think I, I'm not buying. I, I the, the worst place. Now, I, I understand there's. I understand that we have a segregation issue in this city. That this idea that it is the worst place in the entire country. Sorry, and I will maybe we'll have to save that for a, an, another debate a, another day. But I mean, I think there are people who again decide that they can benefit their careers by playing the race card and by pandering in a certain fashion. And I think this was an example of that, which is not to condone what he said. But no, I I, I don't equate. Some 17-year-old that says something stupid who decides to put it out on Twitter. I, I don't equate that with the 17-year-old who ends up committing a crime. Let's talk to Kathy and Racine. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Kathy. What do you think? I think he was a silly child that did something really foolish, and now it's come back to haunt him. Yep. And I'm still wondering if there was a blackmail uh, attempt there. Oh, you mean somebody who like threatened him? Well, it it is interesting. I I would be curious as to who it was yeah. that decided to find these. Because I mean, he, he's been around for you know two years. He was coming up through the minor leagues. It was interesting. Somebody obviously went back, found this stuff, and timed the release in order to get the the maximum exposure plus sent this you know right as he's going into pitch for the all-star game so there was clearly somebody that was out to get him which doesn't justify what he said but wouldn't that be interesting to find out who it was and why it was that they decided to to go after this young man at this point in time and bring it out right when he was at the all-american um yeah right now at the all-star game no right no thanks no there's clear i mean i i would be that would be an interesting second day story and again it it doesn't change the fact that he ended up saying what he said but and i I don't think this is a blackmail case but you know is this obviously this was somebody who was gunning for him and was trying to get the maximum exposure and you, you wonder exactly what was going on which again brings us back to the overall operating point uh, this is a teachable moment to to all young people out there, or all of you that have you know kids who are becoming teenagers or whatever. You gotta sit them down, and maybe it's a lesson to people in their twenties and thirties and forties as well, and say, okay, it's one thing to say something to your buddies; it's another thing when you put it down and share it with the world because it's going to be very difficult for you to ever walk that back. Twelve fifty nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Gru, who's producing the show today and always. Do you know what it is to be a sanctuary city? Not totally. That's an honest answer because I'm not exactly sure what that means either. And the reason is because it means different things to different people and different communities. There are also consequences for being a sanctuary city. For example, if you are a true sanctuary city... It is possible 
that you might lose access to all sorts of federal funds, which is why the Milwaukee County Board passes a resolution saying that they're a sanctuary city. But then when that puts funding at risk, they quickly run in and they say, oh, no, we don't care what we're saying. We're we're really not a sanctuary city in its most pure form. To be a sanctuary city means essentially that you will not cooperate with the federal government in trying to deport someone who is in the country illegally. That is in its most purest form. If you are in the country illegally, don't worry. Come here and we will give you sanctuary. We will not cooperate with the immigration people. We will direct our law enforcement personnel to say that if you are picked up on another crime, we will not contact. You will not contact the federal authorities. You will not honor federal detainers. A detainer is where somebody ends up in the local jail um, or the county jail, and the immigration people come in with a hold saying, look, if the person bails out or if the person is to be released contact us detain him we will come then pick him or her up in the purest form that's what it means to be a sanctuary city essentially you will not cooperate with the federal government when it comes to trying to deport elite people in this country illegally Uh, i think around here the probably the only real community that comes close to being a so-called sanctuary city is is Shorewood, the People's Republic of Shorewood. Shorewood says that we will comply with our legal duties under applicable federal law, but we won't work with customs or ICE or Border Patrol beyond what the bare minimum is that we're supposed to do. For example, Shorewood says that police officers are not to detain a person for a civil violation of federal immigration law. The policies also say that no individual should be held based solely on a federal immigration detainer unless the person has been charged with a federal crime. Um, Okay, so that's, that's the closest we have around here to a true sanctuary city. But some places, New York, San Francisco, they just say we're not going to cooperate, period. And if that means that we have arrested somebody for a serious offense and the feds want him and he's due to be released, we're just going to release him. And if he kills someone, well, we're going to be willing to live with that. Like I say, there are consequences for being a sanctuary city, including, and it's an ongoing series of lawsuits as to how far the federal government can go in cutting off funds. I think what ultimately is going to happen is is you might see a series of laws that are passed making it very clear that if cities do not cooperate with federal law enforcement agencies, then it's very clear that they can lose funding. Um, Right now, though, that's a matter that's working its way through the court. Now, why do I talk about sanctuary cities? Because Wauwatosa, Wauwatosa of all places, is apparently getting ready to have a conversation considering jumping in to this mess. There is a new alderwoman, Heather, is it Keel Cool, who was elected in April, and she is proposing that Wauwatosa adopt a sanctuary city ordinance. All right, she says that she's been watching what has been unfolding, 
and feels that the community needs to step up. This is you folks out in Wauwatosa. She says there's been so much fear and division around this. She sees this as an opportunity to share information. In other words, let's make Wauwatosa a haven for people who are in the country illegally. Um, she says, all right, well, um, th- this is the idea. I want a commitment that the police in Wauwatosa is not going to work in partnership with the immigration people and the FBI to identify in-custody aliens. Um, we're not going to prosecute people for crimes. they. We're going to prosecute people for crimes they commit, and their immigration status shouldn't matter, et cetera, et cetera. The Wauwatosa police chief, Barry Weber, who's been there forever, um, he says, and look, I'm not in favor of this. He says, look, we don't normally check the immigration of status of people we come into contact with. I see the role of our department to enforce the statutes and ordinances of our cities. However, if we come into contact with a violent offender, ordinance or not, we would take the appropriate law enforcement action, which means, all right, you know, if this is somebody that we've determined is in this country illegally, well, yeah, we're going to cooperate with the federal government to get the person deported. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, being a sanctuary city means different things to different people. But in its purest form, it is you do not cooperate with the federal government when it comes to immigration enforcement. If it is... Uh, something that you're absolutely required to do by law, maybe you will do it. San Francisco backs off on that. But is this is this something that's good for Wauwatosa? Now, again, if Wauwatosa were to do this, my guess is they would be putting at least potentially at risk all sorts of, of dollars that they might be getting either from the federal government or from the state government. But, you know, maybe they can win a lawsuit about that. Maybe they can't. 414-799-1620. Should Wauwatosa become a sanctuary city? Would that be a good idea? Let's discuss. I will tell you where I come down on this in just a moment if you can't guess. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you live in Wauwatosa, would you like to see your community become a sanctuary city as being discussed it's 115 this is jeff wagner wtmj 414-799-1620 that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line stick around 119 jeff wagner wtmj grew producing the show you really should read some of our texts they're they're <laughs> you say maybe you should no no this is good here's one of our texts i live in wauwatosa and this older woman is bat crap crazy Although he doesn't say bat crap crazy. Um, this is, we're talking about this new alderman. You, you just, you put her on the common council or the village, whatever. You put her there in April. Her, her big proposal is she wants Wauwatosa to become a sanctuary city. And again, this means different things to different people, but in its purest form, it means we direct law enforcement to not cooperate with federal immigration authorities. Don't enter into partnerships with them. Don't do anything more than you absolutely have to do as required by federal law. Uh, the police chief, who's been there forever, Barry Weber, he says, um, now, let, let us do our job. 414-799-1620. B in Wauwatosa. B, your neck of the woods. Good afternoon. Well, hi there, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. I haven't talked to you for a long time, but I guess I guess <laughs> this has got my ire up. 
I have no idea who this lady is. I don't know that the older person or how long she's lived in Wauwatosa, if she knows anything about Wauwatosa. Uh, and it's a wonderful history. But this is, the, well, like the man just said, the, the stupidest thing I've ever come across with our council. Uh, to, to even consider that as a possibility. And I hope that the police chief does jump in and absolutely uh, destroy that idea. Well, um, well I right. Just, I mean, see, I just don't understand. I mean, see, I, I, I understand. Right. I mean, see, I get this idea that if you've got people who are living in Wauwatosa, you, you want them to feel comfortable to come forward and report crimes if they've been victims or things like that. But this idea that you're essentially going to say to the police, we are not going to, we don't want to allow you to cooperate with federal authorities and turn people over who are in this country illegally. I mean, do you really want Wauwatosa to become a magnet for people who are in this country illegally? And I, who in their right mind would want that if you're a taxpayer in Wauwatosa? I don't know of anybody myself, but I sure hope the people jump on this because <laughs> it's the most insane thing I ever heard. And we already are having enough problems of Wauwatosa. They've grown every year, and I'm, I'm pretty tired of it, and I'm just, I'm just a sad day all woe that we have to put up with all this well, you know, right. All the shootings and things that we are being, you know. Right. Well, no, thanks for, no, of, all, of, of all the play, thanks for, of all the play, look, Shorewood, I get it. All right. I, I understand it's the People's Republic of Shorewood, and it's been this kind of crazy lefty enclave forever. But now, Wauwatosa? I mean, Wauwatosa, you guys are getting hijacked by these policies. Do you really want to be a magnet for. Uh, again, people who are in this country illegally, which is the purest form, do you want to try to tie the hands of the police department when it comes to dealing with people who are in this country illegally who, you know, are caught by the police? And again, the police chief says, look, we we don't go out, you know, trying to enforce federal immigration laws. We don't normally check the status of the people we come into contact with. But at the same time, you know, if we find somebody who's, you know, we've got them and they've caught them and it turns out that they've been deported four or five times. Well, well, yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, notify immigration. And we're going to get involved. Have an interesting text here um, who, you know, the texter makes the point of as a resident of Wauwatosa, Kate Steinley. That's all I need to say. For people who not, might not be familiar with it, Kate Steinley was the young woman in San Francisco who was murdered by the guy who had been deported, what, four or five times, was picked up in San Francisco for a crime, was let out on bail, immigration wasn't contacted, and then he commits, well, he was ultimately acquitted of the murder um, on what I would describe as technical grounds and what was really, in my opinion, a huge miscarriage of justice. But, but nevertheless... Do you, do you want Wauwatosa to be that kind of community? 414-799-1620. Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Well, if you look at Illinois, the two biggest problems with your state budget is your pensions and the sanctuary city of Chicago. It is a big drain on the whole state. Mm-hmm. And you know yourself, they are fighting the Trump administration on all this. Right. If you were to clean up those two problems in Illinois, it, the whole situation would be much different. So it may, you know, taking this discussion now in the, into Wauwatosa, it may require neighboring communities to file lawsuits against this because, you know. Well, no, you know, your point is, right, what, 
What about you know some of the surrounding communities? If Wauwatosa really does become a magnet for people who are in this country illegally, and the police department really is forbidden for you know interacting with federal authorities, you think the crime is going to stay within the boundaries of Wauwatosa? Heck, not. It's going to spread to the surrounding community. Sure. Well, you, you have a spillover effect financially too, because they start you know looking for more money from you know Madison, and that's a drain on the budget. So. You know, it's not fair to neighboring communities that want to play by the rules and, you know, right. and, and put that burden on them. And I, you may have to see neighboring communities step up and say, you know what, we're going to fight you on this because we have a spillover effect here. Well, exactly. No, thanks. I mean, I think you make an interesting point, Sam. It's with all I'm getting all these texts talking about the, the ongoing problems with 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 Wauwatosa. Right. See, and, and uh, there's some very nice there's some very nice areas of Wauwatosa and I Wauwatosa and I don't mean this to be a this isn't a you know beat down on Wauwatosa but I mean you already have the problems that a number of areas are having with the spillover spillover of crime moving from the city of Milwaukee into some of the burbs so you've got all those if, dis, different issues that are out there why would anybody in their right mind decide that they want to wade in on this particular issue Potentially, and I say potentially because you know you know risk federal funds for things at the very least embroil your community in a series of lawsuits. All for what to be a haven for people who are in this country illegally? I I mean maybe I'm missing this, but I don't hear too many problems with the way the the Wauwatosa police authorities are are handling these matters. I don't remember too many stories uh, about Chief Weber's guys, you know, going out and rousting people trying to enforce immigration laws. This to me is the classic example of of number one uh, a solution that is searching for a problem. Is this really a problem in Wauwatosa that you have police that are trampling on the rights of people who might be in this country illegally? My first answer to that would be no. But secondly, why why try to invite this type of scrutiny? Why invite the lawsuits? Why invite the potential problems? No, I want to go back to the first guy that texted me. Um, I do think, I don't know this older woman, but I do know that the idea itself seems to me to be Bat crap crazy, and that should be kind of the message I think that the citizens of Wauwatosa take to their village board or whatever when this issue comes up. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I legitimately wonder whether a lot of the stuff that people claim to be outraged over, are they really outraged about it, or are they just looking for a vehicle to claim that they are outraged over it? Here's a story to that point. There's a, um, it's a, it's a bar in Ohio, kind of outside of what's in Athens, Ohio, which I think is kind of by Cincinnati. Brony's Alumni Grill, and the, the bar has one of these big chalkboards where you know people write stuff like the employees will write like a saying a day or something like that. So the saying that's written on this bar the other day, this is last Friday says, if you're looking for a safe space, this ain't it, cupcake. If you're looking for a safe space, this ain't it, cupcake. In other words, lighten up snowflakes, that type of thing. Well, somebody takes a picture of this, and then it goes viral. And you have all these people who are just outraged at this place. How dare you put up this offensive tweet? Don't you understand? This is promoting This is promoting sexual assault of women. You know, how dare you mock the the safe space thing? Now, 
I guess I looked at this and I interpreted it, you know, you've got politically correct college campuses where you have people who, oh my gosh, we have a conservative speaker who comes on and, and says they actually supported Donald Trump or they oppose sanctuary cities or something like this. Oh my gosh, we have to have these space, safe spaces for people to, to, to protect themselves with the nice music and things like that. Now that's how I interpret it. Now obviously somebody else, so this is just, this is just mocking, you know, sexual assault on college campuses and all. Well, I, I think that's a huge overreaction to this. But, all right, this goes viral. Then you have the outraged Internet community. Matter of fact, one of the breweries that, you know, um, provides beer to this bar, um, Rheingeist, says, We are committed to people in our community. Today we were made aware of an offensive message written on the Rheinquist-branded chalkboard at Brony's Alumni Grill in Athens. The content of the message was ignorant, disrespectful, and wholly inconsistent with our values as a company. As a result, we have ended our relationship. All right. And again, the thing is, if you're looking for a space, safe space, this ain't it cupcake. Well, I guess if, if you really want to kind of twist and turn, you can interpret that as what some of the people do. But I don't think the majority of people interpret it that way. And you know what? I think some of the people who got outraged in social media, they were just once again looking to be outraged about something. It is like when we do our snowflake alerts. Well, the snowflakes get up in arms because snowflakes don't like to be called snowflakes, to which I say, life is tough. Get a helmet. 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, here's the deal. The John McAdams, who was the very controversial professor of political science at Marquette University Law School, at a law school, Marquette University, a Marquette University Law School graduate, Marquette University. He was, of course, suspended and ultimately constructively discharged, I think effectively, as a result of, of posts he made on his blog, The Marquette Warrior. And, you know, Marquette kind of came up with their reason. I thought it was trumped up and ended up, no pun intended, went to the U.S. State Supreme Court. State Supreme Court found in favor of Professor McAdams and uh, ordered him reinstated with any back pay that he might have been owed, etc. I was really curious as to how this was ultimately going to play out. Would Marquette accept him back? Would he, I don't know, maintain a lower profile? Well, <laughs> I have his latest blog entry, Marquette Warrior. And again, I just, I, I love the title of that. And, and no, he's not going quietly into the good night. No plastic straws at Marquette. More dumb virtue signaling. This is his latest. A really terse announcement by Marquette. Marquette Dining Services retail locations, that is Marquette Place, Brew Cafes, etc., are phasing out plastic straws and transitioning to eco-friendly paper straws. This, by the way, grew. This is the this is the hip and trendy thing that some businesses are doing. Starbucks is doing this, getting rid of the plastic straws and, and going to the paper straws that cost a lot more to manufacture, that use a lot more energy to manufacture. So I'm not sure how eco-friendly they really are. Um, this is like virtue signaling, and this is what McAdams writes, and he's right. This is, of course, yet another example of virtue signaling that just inconveniences people and does nothing significant for the environment. See, here's the argument against the plastic straws. Straws go into the trash, and then they go into landfills. All right? Yes. And then the stuff from landfills 
somehow ends up in the ocean at some point in time, and you have this plastic in, in the ocean. Well, the vast majority of plastic that is in the ocean comes from countries other than the U.S., and as far as the plastic that does end up in the ocean from the U.S., straws are a negligible amount of this. So this is this is one of these complete and total like tempest in a teapots. Um, for example, the journal of the in the Science Journal it lists twenty countries that put the most plastic waste in oceans. The U.S. barely makes the list. And that includes all plastics, not just straws. And the U.S. only makes the list because we're large and we're rich and a lot of people are consuming all sorts of things. In other words, getting rid of plastic straws does almost nothing to enhance the environment. But this is the thing that kind of liberals want. So why, why, what's the argument against plastic straw, uh, in favor of plastic straws? Well, again, they're they're cheaper, they work better, and as a general rule, they, they don't require as much energy to produce. Interestingly, this whole anti-plastic straw movement it, it starts it starts with this claim that uh, Americans use more than 500 million drinking straws daily. Oh my gosh, 500 million drinking straws! That number it's it comes from a nine-year-old boy. Really, what happened is. This nine-year-old kid back in 2011 um, was doing like a, a research project, and he was trying to figure out how many straws you know that that there were a day. So he called up a handful of the companies that made straws. He asked for their estimates, and then he extrapolated this. It is the ultimate, of course, in in junk science. Bottom line, though, is it appears that at least at some facilities at Marquette University, they are now deciding to be, oh, ever so politically correct. They're joining the Starbucks of the world, and they're going to be doing away with the plastic straws all for, I don't know, all for the purpose of making people feel good. Wonderful. It's 141. When we come back, I want to talk about the demise of newspapers and much else, much many other things. Stick around. It's 141. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A number of people texting in about the, the whole straw issue, about how it, for, for people with disabilities, um, in many cases, they, they need the straws to, to drink, and that's always an issue as well. I'm not a straw guy, so it really doesn't make much difference to me. The only time I use straws... Movie theaters, when you got like the big thing of Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke or whatever, I'll use a straw there. But just at, at a restaurant or something, I don't, I don't drink stuff through straws as a general rule. But I know some people end up doing it. All right. I admit I was a little bit confused earlier on this morning because of contradictory headlines. That, that this is the AP story that first came out about Harley, Harley Davidson. Of course, the Milwaukee Motorcycle Company that's been in the news a lot lately, they, they reported their earnings for the second quarter. Now, the AP story, the Associated Press story, the headline was Harley-Davidson results top Wall Street expectations, Latin America sales up, which you would think that, that makes it sound good. This, this is good. Harley-Davidson topped Wall Street expectations again on steady sales in Latin America, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Although shipments slipped by 11% in the second quarter, and the company warned that new Euro European Union tariffs would pressure operating margins. 
Um, the the way it worked is the the company for the second quarter reported earnings of a dollar forty five per share. That's less than last year, but it beat expectations by about a dime. The analysts, the so-called experts, thought it was going to be one thirty-five. So that gets the headline: Hey, they exceeded analysts' expectations. The truth of the matter then is a lot more complicated, which suggests that the AP headline writer kind of missed the point. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it, and they're they're right. Um, Harley Davidson sales slump as U.S. motorcycle business falters. Harley-Davidson's U.S. motorcycle sales fell in the company's recent fiscal quarter as the company reported a 6.4% drop in profit. So, yeah, the earnings per share kind of beat expectations, but the profit was down 6.4%, which isn't good. With sales slumping, Harley said its net income was down about $16 million from a year earlier, revenue fell. Motorcycle sales in the U.S. were down 6.4%. International sales were up 0.7%. Worldwide, including the U.S., sales fell 3.6%. So in other words, let's cut through this. What's going on is in the United States, they are having trouble selling bikes. I'm not saying they're not selling bikes. But we've talked about this before. As baby boomers age, uh, people are, are age, and, and that was the principal market for the big expensive Harleys. As baby boomers age, they're not, they're either getting out of the motorcycle habit or they're not buying as many new ones as they used to. And there's not enough young people coming up on the backside to replace the you know, 65-year-old Harley rider who's now got bad knees or whatever and society's going to give it up. That That's the, the problem that they're having. So if Harley is going to continue to grow as a company and U.S. sales are struggling or declining, well, well, what do you do? Well, I guess it's two things. I mean, one, you have to figure out, can you broaden the U.S. market somehow? Or secondly, you expand worldwide. You say, all right, you know, we're, we're not selling as many bikes in the United States. Okay, then let's go after the Latin American market. Let's go after the European market. That's, that's just what you do if you're going to survive. And, and there's, I mean, there's the, the rub because their ultimate plan is to grow their international business to about 50% of their sales. So their goal is, if we're going to survive, we want 50% of our sales to be in the U.S., 50% to be worldwide. Well, here's here's the problem. With the, this tariff war that's going on, what they estimate is that um, by next year, they could face up to $100 million in European Union tariffs. Now, these aren't, these aren't added costs. These are just tariffs that the company, that the countries are putting on as a cost of importing Harleys. Um, and that's in addition to the additional 45 to $50 million in tariffs this year. And, and Harley is saying, we can't eat these costs. It's just too much. We can't grow the company if all of a sudden, because of this trade war, that 
President Trump has now launched us in, if we're getting these retaliatory tariffs, we, we can't eat 45 or $50 million this year. We can't eat $100 million next year. We need to get into the European markets. But if all of a sudden the cost of our bikes is going to be artificially increased by 2000 or $3,000 or whatever it is per bike, simply because we have to pay these import fees, we're not going to be able to grow, and we might not be able to survive. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For the longest time, I, I look, I, I make no bones about it. I am a free trade conservative. I, I, I am. I, I think the way the marketplace works or should work is that you know, goods and services should be able to be exchanged back and forth. The, 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 we grow the economy by allowing a, a free flow of that. I understand that there have been issues, for example, with China, where, you know, China has been dumping products cheaply. But, but here's the bottom line. This, this example shows how tariffs hurt companies, and in this case, it's hurting a uh, a Milwaukee company. Now, Harley-Davidson is saying in response to this, what we're going to do is we're going to shift production overseas to avoid the the import tariffs. I don't know if they would have done that anyways. There are, you know, it makes economic sense if you're selling bikes in England to make the bikes, you know, overseas. Maybe that's it. But Harley, looking at these tariffs, is saying that, you know, we can't, you know, we can't survive unless something changes. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. D- does this trade war make any sense? And in particular, when we talk about a company that I think we're all huge fans of, which is Harley-Davidson, you know, what is the future of Harley if we are launched in one of these trade wars? Does it mean moving more production overseas? Does it mean simply ultimately the company goes under? 414-799-1620, what is the future of Harley-Davidson? Because they are confronting this issue now. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? The fact is Harley has to go where the market is, and the market seems to be down in Mexico and overseas. Mm-hmm. And so the fact is is that once you begin to have this, this, this tariff war, you know, the fact is, it's not, it's not good for America, not good for Harley and other American companies. And now we're talking about bailing out farmers. Are we going to start bailing out Harley and, and, and other companies as well? You know, it, 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 it's a circular argument which makes no sense. Yeah, well, it, it does. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because that's the news story today that, that President Trump is now saying, well, okay, b- because of this trade war that I launched, I now find that, you know, farmers are being hurt by this, you know, no kidding. So I'm going to start, you know, talking about, you know, getting aid to them. Well, why not, why not get out of the trade war? Then yeah. you don't need to start bailing out farmers. <laughs> I, so, so, no, no, Harley is in trouble. Harley is in trouble. And like we said before, Harley was, it was kind of on the fence before. And so they have to go where the market is, it is favorable to them. And so, so, so to, to, to have this, this fight between the president and Holly, you know, it, it makes no sense. You, you need to uh, stop this trade war, right. allow Holly to do what it needs to do to survive, and maybe, and hopefully, the American market will slowly come back. Right. But, but if you put him underwater, 
is not going to make any difference. Well, right. And the reality is, I mean, I think it Har- Harley acknowledges. They see what's going on with the market. They see that, you know, American riders for, are, are aging out of some of those big bikes. But And that's why they're saying, okay, well, we expect worldwide 50% of our production is, is going to be worldwide, 50% in the U.S., but you're not going to ever get to that point if you're engaged in a trade war. All, you're just, all you are doing is encouraging Harley to make more and more bikes overseas, and that's not good. That's not good at all, and 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 to have to now to come back and say the taxpayers now have to bail out all these things, all this stupid thing, it's, right. it's, it's insane. No, no, thanks for calling. No, and and, and you know, Vincent is absolutely right, and that's kind of the segue into you know the, the latest thing. I mean, here's the reality, and one of the things that I, I thought, and when it comes to President Trump, I understand that I drive people on the left and the right crazy because I understand that there's people out there who are hardcore Trump haters. There's nothing that he can do that's right. You hate him. And then I understand that there's some people on the right who are are, are just love. There's, he can do absolutely no wrong. I think the truth is a lot more nuanced, which is why I try to run this program and I try to say, okay, this is why I think that this is what it is. The, the comments about trade wars are easy to win was incredibly, in my opinion, incredibly dumb. Nobody wins trade wars. Now, you might have issues with a particular trade agreement or whatever. Well, then you renegotiate that. But, you know, what has happened since President Trump has declared, all right, we're going to impose, impose tariffs on, on aluminum and steel coming in. Well, first of all, in the U.S., we don't have enough manufacturing to make the aluminum and steel that we need for our needs. So you have to import stuff. But in response to those tariffs, now what's happened is you have European countries, you have China, you have Canada. People are now retaliating. Okay, you're going to impose a 10 or 20% tariff. Fine, we are going to do the same thing. And in what has been a predictable response, it's killing Farmers. So like Vincent was saying, here, here's what the president is, is saying today. He's preparing to direct billions of dollars to farmers whose crops have been hurt by tariffs. All right. So otherwise, the farmers would have been able to make money exporting their goods overseas because of these tariffs. Companies aren't going to they're, they're not going to It no longer makes sense for somebody to bring in American soybeans or American ginseng because they'd have to pay the tariff if they import it, so they find another supplier. So the president's answer is, let's take taxpayer money and let's bail out the farmers who've been hurt as a result of these tariffs and this trade war that I said was easy to win. Well, get out of the trade war and let's go back to allowing, you know, again, the market to operate. If you've got a bad deal, negotiate it. But this it's just, again, it's one of these things where you bounce around, you stick your finger in the, the dike to plug one leak, and next thing you know, you've got three other leaks that you're trying to plug. This, from an economic perspective, the one thing that I think almost everybody should be acknowledging under President Trump is the economy has been doing extremely well. That, I don't think, continues unless you get a handle on this stuff. I was reading a story yesterday. There's apparently a record amount of meat that is sitting around in storage lockers. So much meat that they can't even fill. They don't have storage lockers for it anymore because it was supposed to be sent. This is stuff that was supposed to be exported. Well, now the company, countries aren't buying it because of the, the tariffs. So it's sitting around. And, you know, plus 
There's going to be more and more meat coming every day. This, it's just bad policy. It's pure bad policy. It affects Harley. It affects farmers. And now we're going to run around and give bailouts to farmers who are adversely affected because of the trade war. Give me a break. 157. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, you might have seen this story about the latest outrage, the the guy who did not get a tip at a waiter at a, at a restaurant in Texas and had this note saying, we don't tip terrorists. Well, never mind. It, what happened last week, uh, there was a young man named Khalil Cavell, who was a waiter at a Texas steakhouse, yeah, the Saltgrass Steakhouse in Odessa, Texas, and... He goes public with his story. He says he's waiting on this guy, and he gets the he he gives him the the, the check, and he gets the the thing back. And on the on message where the guy paid with the credit card, there's no tip, and he has written the note. This would be the customer. He's written the note. We don't tip terrorists. Again, implying that this waiter, because he's presumably Muslim, is a terrorist. Okay, that's the. That's the background of this. So the waiter goes public with this story. He calls a reporter for the local newspaper. Local newspaper runs with the story. They post it on social media. The restaurant comes out, denounces that this, of course. They reach out, contact the customer, tell the customer, you are banned because they've got the name. It's on the credit card slip. You are banned from our restaurant. And as soon as this story goes public, people who feel sorry for this poor waiter who's been the victim of racism, they, they start this GoFundMe campaign and people are donating money to, you know, help him out, you know, because, well, he's been the victim of this. Well, here's day two. Never mind. Apparently, uh, the story about the waiter who claimed he was called a terrorist and it got all this national attention, he now says, it was a hoax. He wrote the racist note himself, he said. He contacted the reporter and lied to the reporter. He says, I did write it. I don't have an explanation. I made a mistake. No, no, that's that's not true. This isn't a mistake. Um, this is This is something that you did intentionally to get attention and, I think, to try to get money. He says, there's no excuse for what I did. Um, which is the case. He's now, let's see, the, the CEO of the restaurant chain says, after further investigation, we have learned that our employee fabricated the entire story. The customer has been contacted and invited back to our resident restaurant to dine on us. Racism of any form is intolerable, and we will always act swiftly should it occur in any of our establishments. Falsely accusing someone of racism is equally disturbing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what pretty much happened here is you had this guy who was looking for a way to get, number one, attention, and number two, get money, and that is precisely what he did. They're not saying how this story unraveled, but my guess is my guess is the guy who was identified on the, the slip when they called him and said, hey, you're banned from this restaurant, my guess is he probably said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't write this I don't tip terrorists thing here. I didn't do that. 
And then they started to investigate, and one thing led to another, and ultimately they were able to determine that it was the waiter who was pulling the scam and falsely playing the racism card. Of course, that gets lost a lot of times in in what's all going on because with social media nowadays and everybody so quick to believe that there is a problem or there's racism or this is the reason for it, everybody jumps to these conclusions. And I'm sure a lot of these stories are accurate, but a lot aren't. Remember, I think it was in the 1 o'clock hour of the program yesterday, I was telling the story about this business owner in San Francisco who he owns a, a lemonade, a little storefront in the Mission District. And at 6.45 one morning, he's, he's out and his security camera isn't working. So he's out and he's like futzing with the security camera and he's on the phone and some neighbor calls and, and calls the police and says, I think somebody might be breaking into the store. And the police come. And they investigate and they determine, no, the guy says, no, I'm the owner. They ask him for ID. He provides it. He's got the keys to the door. He opens it up. The police thank him for his time and go on their way. And he goes on social media claiming, well, this this all happened because I was black. Well, no, it happened because some concerned neighbor saw somebody messing with a security camera outside of business hours and was concerned, and they called the police. But again, the way the story gets played is, oh, this is racism. Or here, that's this is the classic example of this as well. Guy says, well, I, I look at this, look at what I got. This is terrible. You know, people were saying, the guy is calling me a terrorist, you know, simply because of my last name or my appearance or whatever. And it turns out to all be fake. Okay, Journal Sentinel had a, in, an interesting story the, the other day about something that's going to be going on in Wisconsin. And I want to sound you out on it. For the last two or three years, if you want to collect food stamps, and and they they call it food share now, but people just understand the short term of as being food stamps. Since 2015, if you were between the ages of 18 and 49, you had no minor children at home, and you wanted to collect food stamps, you have been required to either work search for jobs, or engage in occupational training at least 20 hours a week. If you don't do that, you can lose your benefits after three months. So that was what the rules is between 18 and 49. You have to work, or if you're not working, you have to be looking for jobs or getting this occupational training. The exception to that was for people who had children at home. That is going to change starting in October of next year, not this October, but October 1st of 2019, starting next October, year from this October. This requirement is going to extend to parents with children ages six and above and might increase the requirement to 30 hours. So in other words, the fact that you have a child who is at home Now, not infants, have to be six or older, so presumably the child is in school. If the child is six or older, you also will have to either be looking for a job, be working 30 hours a week, or be involved in occupational training in order to get food stamps. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As you might expect, With any change to these public benefit programs, this is controversial. The people who oppose it are saying 
This is terrible. It is a war on the poor. You should not force people to work or to look for jobs as a condition of getting their basic needs. Interestingly enough, if you've got children at home, the kids still qualify for the food share thing, but you as the adult wouldn't. But the idea behind this is to get people either working or looking for jobs or in some form of job training. So let's tee this up. Is this unreasonable? They've been essentially doing the same thing since 2015 for all adults age 18 to 49. This is going to extend it to people who have minor children at home, not infants, but minor children. 414-799-1620. Is this unreasonable? Let's discuss. My answer is no. I, I, I don't think so. If the idea is to get people off the dole and working, what you need to do is you need to give them incentives to do it. And this is one of the ways. And at the same time, you also need to offer people job training to do it. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, good afternoon. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Okay, is this the war on the poor, or is this something reasonable to try to get people back on their feet or on their feet? I think it's the exact opposite of the war on the core. I think it's uh, the old saying stands on this, like, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you know, teach him how to fish, and he'll eat forever. And I think the same principle applies here. If you get these people skills, they're going to go out and be productive and actually, you know, feel better about themselves and be more productive. I think it should go even a step further and have a drug and alcohol test and uh, if they, they're dirty, you get them in treatment and get them cleaned up. Well, see, I mean, I guess that, that I, thanks to call. I mean, I look at this like this. I, I understand that people don't like this, and I understand that there's some people who say, okay, this isn't just, this is unfair. But the truth of the matter is, can we all agree that the key to a better life is trying to better yourself? If you've got a job, getting a better job. If if that's one of the goals, if you don't have a job, finding that first job, getting your foot in the door, getting the skills you need, and then maybe getting a better job after that. Can't we all agree that that's that's the goal? And unfortunately, you do have a, a segment of people who, for whatever reasons, you know, aren't aren't able to get that first foot in their door and in, in the door. And I think what's going on here is there is an effort to try to make it less comfortable for people to be in that particular situation. I think what they really want to do is they want to say, look, we're, you know, we're going to, we have the safety net for people that's out there, but it isn't a mattress. And the truth of the matter is we, we want to force you to the extent we can to better yourself. Let us help you help, help yourselves. And so you got to apply for jobs. You, we don't want to give you an incentive to just be able to collect, you know, food stamps or whatever it might be without also, you know, trying to force you to look for work. The reality is that, you know, we're even nearing full employment. Just drive around just our area, uh, regardless of where you are listening to me. My guess is you drive around, you're going to see all sorts of, of ads. You're going to see signs up there saying help wanted for this, help wanted for that. Now, maybe it's not the greatest job in the world, but if you're not working, it's at least a start, something that gets you out of the house and something that gets you working. And I guess what I think is going on here is they're trying to provide incentives to get people out of the house and to get them working. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, 
Anna in Whitefish Bay. Anna, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Anna. Um, I've been a social worker uh, working with the kind of people that you're talking about. I've been doing it for about 40 years now. And what I find is there's so much trauma connected. Hello? Hello? Lost Anna's call. I didn't touch any button. It just kind of dropped off there. I was kind of curious as to what she was going to say. Trauma connected with, I don't know, I don't know if she was talking trauma connected with being poor. And look, and I, I'm sure this is a tough lifestyle that, that that's out there. That's why, I mean, I, I talk about the value of work all the time beyond simply the paycheck. The paycheck is important, but it's the value of work. It is learning that work ethic. We did a topic last week about how fewer and fewer kids are going after summer jobs. And and my point was you're, you're missing out on something. You need to develop that work ethic. And again, I understand that we want to have a safety net for the people who are in the most at-risk situation. I, I get that, and I don't oppose it. But at the same time, you also want to push people to try to better themselves. Let's talk to um, Karen in New Berlin. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello? Okay, let's try Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Yep, well, thank we actually, you. We actually connected. Got it. That's good. <laughs> Got it, yeah. Um, um, no, I think, I think it's a great idea. In fact, I think, you know, like I told you know, you screeners, like, kind of like, should be like, go back to the old Tommy Thompson days with three hots and a cot type thing. It's kind of like, you know what? If you want something free, earn it. Do something. Anything. Well, yeah, and I you guess, know, I mean. For a community service, you know, be a community service, be it out there looking for a job, doing something, but just not sitting on your you know, right, and, and look, and nobody gets rich on food stamps, and I, 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 I understand this. No, nobody gets rich on on doing that type of stuff. But I think what you have here is this effort to try to help people help themselves, and one of the ways you can kind of force people into doing that is precisely is precisely this: try to get them that job training. And look, there's going to be some people who just it's not going to work, and I, I understand that. But I got to believe for for most people, if you force them into trying to find that job, they're, they're, it's going to work for them. Well, and, they're going to go. They're going. They're going to go into survival mode at some point. Right. I mean, if there's if there's nothing coming in, they're going to do whatever. You know. I mean, they're going to do. They're going to take whatever they have to get. Right. Because when there's not, you know, when you can't pay the bills and you're, you know, you don't want to sleep out on the, you know, on the, you know, we're not like. Right. Well, I mean, I and thanks. I mean, look, and I look, and I understand it, it might not be the the type of job you you want. I mean, I you, you go through the. I I have I have friends who are in the fast food business, and you know they're they're not paying, they're not paying minimum wage. You know, they're they're talking. They're not paying as a general rule fifteen dollars an hour either, but they're paying ten or twelve dollars an hour for adults. And they tell me they just can't find people that'll take these jobs. Now, is it the most glamorous job? No, it it's not. But at least it, it's it's a job, and they need people. And then the other story they'll tell me is even if they hire people and make these investments, what happens a lot of times is the people after two or three days just decide they they don't want to show up, and and so they don't end up showing up, and it ends up being this frustration. I don't think it is unreasonable to expect people to either work or make an effort towards doing that. And that's what this is all about. Will it succeed? I don't know. But I, but I don't think 
you know, people should be viewed as evil for trying to do this. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say, hey, look, we've got to put some requirements on these programs in an effort to try to incentivize people to help themselves. It's 227. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One week from tomorrow, it is Cream Puff Apalooza. Myself. And my colleague from KTI Country, Karen D'Alessandro, we were going to, we will be out in the parking lot at State Fair Park. It's the one that that runs parallel to the freeway and right in front of the the Pettit Ice Center. We will be there starting at six a.m. and as long as they last. We've got three hundred six packs of cream puffs. We will give you a free six pack of cream puffs as long as they last so it's cream blues that you don't have to do anything you don't have to send us stuff you don't have to say magic words all you have to do is be one of the first 300 people in line um i i i did this year after year after year and then the last two years i wasn't able to do it because i was doing the morning shift but now i am back I will tell you, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, I will get there about 5.30. There will be cars lined up through the parking lot down 84th Street. It's just, it is an amazing thing to see. You should get your chunky butt out of bed and bed and come see this just to say that you have seen it at one point in time. So you're giving away six packs of cream, cream puffs. puffs. I, I wonder if anyone just opens up the box and eats all yes. six like oh. at one time. I can oh, well, only eat I, one at a time. But. I ask that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will say, what are you going to do with them? Yeah, all six. And, and see, some people come, they, they come with those little coolers. The, like share. the, the coolers. Yeah. Well, it, it varies. Some people stop and they're on their way into work, you know, and so they're going to take them to work and be really popular. Sure. Some people are <laughs> really taking them over for the to day. The, <laughs> right. Taking them over to the, yeah. to the, to the grand, they're going to pick up the grandkids. Oh, yeah. I mean, some people put them right in a cooler so they're going to keep them for later on. And, um, some people do. I, I they think come in with a plan, or they or they get in their car and they just hide away and eat all six. But it is absolutely <laughs> amazing. It is one of my favorite. Seriously, it is now. If you ask me this, Melissa, when the alarm goes off at four thirty next Wednesday morning, mm-hmm. you know how do you feel about it? I I I don't know how I feel. But if you ask me about it at five forty five, it's just exciting. Once you get out there, and, and it's just a lot of fun. And it's the day before the state fair, so it's kind of our partnership to help encourage people to get excited about the state fair. And unlike previous years, when when your partner here on the on the afternoon show, Greg Matzik, when he did it filling in for me one year. Uh-huh. He didn't bring any back to the studio. He just disappeared. Oh, I see how I, he works. <laughs> I will. I will to the extent that there are any extras that uh, the cream puff people are generous enough to give me. I bring them back to the station and I share. So. And I think people have a, a certain way they eat the cream puff. Me, I just put it in my mouth and I just eat it. And the, you know, it, the powdered sugar goes everywhere. But I was watching Matzik eat it the other day. He like cut it in half. He had like oh. a little, Oh no, that was Scott Warris. Scott Warris was oh, yeah. filling in and he, you know, I was like, what are you doing? Oh no. what? <laughs> he has like a little mission of well, how you eat your cream puff. So well, it doesn't, I'm, I'm a everywhere. scooper. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. what I do is I, I separate it like an Oreo cookie. Sure. I take the top off and then I, I kind of dip the, the one in and eat with the cream and stuff. Oh, but, that's good, yeah. but I digress. But the bottom line is, we are going to be broadcasting live many days of State Fair. Matter of fact, I'm out there every weekday of State Fair, but one um, that starts a week from Thursday. But Cream Puff Palooza, uh, hope to see you 6 a.m. Wednesday, next Wednesday morning, a week from tomorrow. 
Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's two thirty nine. All right, this is a. Uh, it, it, it's there's eight Democrats in the primary trying to seek the right to challenge Governor Walker. A couple have absolutely no chance at all, and, and there's one whose campaign seems to be just completely and totally imploding in a predictable fashion. Matt Flynn. Retired attorney, worked for Quarles and Brady, very prominent law firm downtown. Uh, Matt has former chairman of the state Democratic Party. He's run for just about everything there is to run for, and he's never been successful. So at the age of 70, he decided he was going to weigh into the governor's race, which was bizarre to a lot of us. Um, because, again, I, you, you think that in some respects, maybe the Democratic Party is going to be looking f- forward, not, you know, not backward to its past. But the, the problem Matt Flynn has is one of his big clients was the Archdiocese of Milwaukee during the, the whole pedophile priest scandal. And Matt Flynn was the attorney for the Archdiocese. He worked closely with the, I think, disgraced you know, former Archbishop Rembert Weekland. And now that's coming back to, to haunt him. You have a number of victims of sexual abuse by priests who are denouncing Matt Flynn. They're they're accusing him of being involved in some of the efforts that they believe the archdiocese engaged in to cover this up and things of of the like. And it's coming back to, uh, again, whatever the merits of uh, are, that is, that is certainly, that's the perception that some of the victims had. He apparently had this this conference call um, where he, yesterday with reporters, where he kind of sort of went completely off the rail and he ended up talking about, you know, the work that he was engaged in and then went on to denounce uh, elites in the Democratic Party who make this a victimology seminar, whatever, whatever that is. Um, you know, and again, the the bottom line of all this, and I, I said this yesterday, I, I think Matt Flynn is a very good lawyer. I think he was a very good lawyer. For whatever reasons, the archdiocese, back when it was getting all these different challenges and people were coming forward alleging that they were abused, etc., they, in my opinion, decided to take a very aggressive approach in defending these cases. And, and Flynn was at the center of that. Now, that's not saying it's improper what they did. It was just a, a very aggressive approach. And many of the people believe that by... Taking this approach, they the victims were re-victimized. And, and that's, you know, parties to litigation can decide how they want to handle things. I, I think for the longest time, the archdiocese kind of dug in its heels, and it fought a number of these cases. And Matt Flynn was at the center of this. It's not saying he's a bad lawyer. It's quite, contra- quite to the contrary. He's a good lawyer. You know, he was vigorously representing his client. But Okay, now you pay for that. And there's a lot of people out there who say, you know, this this isn't the way this matter should have been handled. And all I know is a couple weeks before an eight-way Democratic primary, you don't want to be on conference calls defending yourself for being overly aggressive and going after victims of um, abuse by priests. It's just, it's not the message that you want to get out and denouncing members of your own party as being, you know, uh, caught up in the victimology culture or whatever the heck that means. Just not where you necessarily want to be at that point in time in your election. Having said that, you know, Flynn is polling in the latest Marquette Law School poll at like 6 or 7%. Everybody's way behind Tony Evers. Theoretically, if somebody can figure out a way to get 25% of the vote or so, they might come out of that eight-way primary. But this... Uh, 
It's kind of not where you want to see your campaign. All right, I want to switch gears. We've been talking about a lot of significant heavy stuff. There is a study out there that I want to get your reaction to, and I'm uh, Johns Hopkins University out of Baltimore, which is well known as a research facility. They they just did a study where it was geared to either try to confirm or deny something that pet owners, particularly dog owners, have have believed for a long time. And, and the theory was that pets, and in particular this focused on dogs, are in tune with the emotions of their owners and will offer support in times of crisis. This is something that's never been tested before. So what what this is the way the study worked. They took they took dogs and they positioned the dogs behind a door that was closed with magnets with the dog owners on on the other side. And then what they had the owners do, in some cases they had them like laugh and and hum a song, in other cases, they had the owners pretend to cry. So on the one hand, the dogs were hearing their owners be happy. On the other hand, the dogs were hearing their owners be in a form of distress. And what they found is that the, the dogs, when they heard their owners were in distress, the owners, the dogs, became much more aggressive in trying to force their way through the door um, and, and provide comfort to their, their owners. Now, that might sound like a, a silly little study, and, and, and I don't know if there's any sort of way that you can ever track that empirically, but their conclusion was that it does appear that the dogs in particular, and maybe you could extend this to all pets, I don't know, but certainly dogs, if they found the owners were in need of comforting, they were likely to offer that, whereas if everything was fine and dandy, they were just content to stay on the other side of the door. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, um, as If you are a regular listener to this program, you, you know that I am a, I'm a dog owner. I, I have a little dog who's been with me for you know three years now. I, we got her when I was, she was about like six to seven weeks old, and she is one of the lights of my life. I firmly believe this study. You know, there, there's no question that when I think back over the years, the, the time that I've had my dog, in, in times where emotional, very, very difficult emotional times, the dog has behaved and behaved differently. I think the dogs, at least my dog, I think can sense when there is something wrong and, again, kind of... Maybe because the dog senses there's something wrong, the dog feels bad too. Maybe it's, I don't know if it's the dog providing the owner emotional comfort or the, the dog coming to the owner for emotional comfort. But I think there's something to this. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Just just one segment. Pet owners, and in particular dog owners, do you believe that dogs are able to sense when there is something wrong, when there's something going on, some emotional turmoil, and do they then, do they know to come and try to provide some form of comfort? Or is all this just all a bunch of hooey? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Johns Hopkins says, if you've ever thought this is happening, it's it's in fact true. Let's start with Michelle in Grafton. Hi, Michelle, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Well, I was telling you, Screener, um, 
when my kids were little, if anything would happen, or even when they were babies, if they would wake up here and after and cry and I wouldn't hear them, my dog would go crazy until she got one of us over to the child. Okay. And got our attention. And the other thing is my mom, who's not a pet lover, we never had pets as children, she had a surgical procedure, she was in the hospital. My sister took her home for a couple of days to recover to her house, and my mom's 90. Right. And my mom got up one morning. My sister was gone to get something, and my sister has two large rescue dogs. And my mom passed out in the kitchen. Right. And one dog laid at her head, nudging her, and the other dog laid on her body to keep her warm. <laughs> wow. No, so I no, they. I mean, that, and that, they didn't even really know her, and my mom is now a convert. <laughs> <laughs> it's brought her around. No, thanks for the call. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. We've got time for a couple more calls. Back with. I mean, do dogs? That this study says dogs can tell when you are emotionally distressed, and they will go out of their way to try to provide comfort to you. I believe it. Two forty eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 50, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, John in Greenfield. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Do you think dogs, I mean, this this study says dogs know when people, you know, need their comfort. Yeah, I never would have guessed this could happen. Uh, we had a five-year-old dog that every night would be with my wife on the couch watching TV or whatever with her and, the, and sleeping. Right. And uh, I uh, would sit over in the chair. I came home from the hospital after three days and surgery or recovering from surgery i came home sat in the chair that night and for three weeks thereafter he came and sat next to me and laid next to me never went back to my wife for three weeks then he must have figured i was okay and went back to my wife for the rest of his life now that really was something i was shocked yeah and it was it was just something and and the only thing that was different is you you know you were recovering from surgery and the dog obviously had to sense that yep uh, amazing. No, sure. well, no, I no thanks. I I just I, I mean, see if you would have asked me intuitively about this, I I would have said, yeah, and that's certainly I, I mean, my dog knows, you know, when something's wrong and I I just I I I could tell you stories about exactly that. Kay in Madison. Hi Kay, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Cat cat and dog lover. Um my work schedule just does better with cats. Right. But uh um and they've They've shown the same type of things leaving aside, but I always remember um, years ago, we lost my mom to cancer. She was only 55, but we, my sister and I both had a, we had a, we each had a cat and they did not leave her side when mm-hmm. she was, when she was home. We, we did like in-home hospice type things. Right. And it was like the two little guys were on shift, shift one. <laughs> mom constantly had a cat by her side and they were, Friendly cats, they would cuddle with whomever, but it wasn't like they were only by her side all the years before either. You know what I mean? These were pets that we had growing up, but it's like they they knew there right. was something wrong and she needed it. Yeah, no, thanks. And that's the that that's that's the wonderful thing about about animals. I mean, I'm I, I'm born again hard when it comes to to pets, and uh, I you know for most of my adult life, I didn't, didn't have a pet in my life. Now I I I can't imagine it. Gavin in New Berlin, Gavin, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, Mr. Wagner. Hi, Kevin. Um, I think that dogs, like, always come towards you when, like, you get home from somewhere. Because mm-hmm. they always feel like it, they, they, it's been, like, time away from you. And 
uh, they just want to spend time with you, especially like if you're crying, mm-hmm. like you have had a really bad day. They'll always come right next to your side <laughs> and try to try to give you try to make you feel better. How old are you, Gavin? I'm 11. 11. Well, thanks for listening to the show. I appreciate it a lot. I agree with you. What you have a dog yourself? I have three. What kind? Um, I have two twins, but um, one's a um golden retriever. Okay. One's a um golden doodle, and one's a black lab. Black Lab. Those are great kinds of dogs, Gavin. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening to the show. And I, I'm with you. I think dogs, uh, doesn't matter whether they're big dogs or I've got a little dog myself, but doesn't matter whatever. I think they know. And like I say, that's, uh, it, the, Johns Hopkins does this study and says that's the case. But I think, uh, candidly, uh, candidly, I didn't need a study to tell me that. It's 254. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their respective minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please stick around. This is Jeff Wagner.